Good morning, everyone. My name is Camille, and I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is May the 2nd of 1972. My home group is the uh, uh, Fox Hall group that meets on Tuesday night in Louisville, Kentucky. I also have another home group, and they just sent me an email to remind me that I am a member of their home group, and I go to the Monday night Oberlin uh, ladies meeting in Oberlin, Ohio. Uh, I am from Louisville, Kentucky, and uh, half the uh, speakers are from Louisville, Kentucky. You're, you're having a Louisville, Kentucky convention here. Uh, this really is a spiritual experience. I want to thank uh, the chairman, Karen, who I've never spoke to, and there's a whole story, and, and we don't have time to go into that now, but um, my husband, whose also name is Bob, like the uh, gentleman last night, Bob, when Karen called, she talked to Bob, and uh, she thought that Bob was Bob W., and it was Bob F., so anyway, my husband went ahead and said yes, he would come and speak, and, and uh, committed for Bob W., anonymity, <laughs> you know, anonymity sometimes is very interesting. So anyway, to make a long story short, that's why the two of us, because then when he said, well, I, um, what should I do, you know, and, and she said, oh, you can speak too, and, and so that's why you guys are going to have a very interesting experience. <laughs> we're going to have an interesting experience, too, because what we're going to do is that each of us are going to qualify for about 10 minutes. And uh, my theory is if you can't get your point across in 10 minutes, you ought to sit down. <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, that, that, so I'm going to do that, and uh, Bob is going to follow. And then afterwards, what we would like to do is share... Our uh, experience, strength, and hope is how we use the traditions in our relationship. And thank God we have the traditions in the relationship because we wouldn't have a relationship. If I didn't practice the traditions and the concepts when, when I have to deal with members of Alcoholics Anonymous in any kind of service position, I wouldn't be in service. I mean, it, it's uh, very interesting. Working with a bunch of alcoholics reminds me of trying to round up a bunch of cattle in Wyoming and there's no fences. And every, all, everybody's going every which way, you know? So that's sort of the, the plan. Um, and uh, to get this all done, because I believe that uh, we need to get on, out on time, and I've already uh, wasted 15 minutes of our time. Okay. My sobriety date, you know. I uh, was one of those drinkers. I was born to a real alcoholic. And uh, by the time I was six months old, I was taken away by the state of Montana because of her drinking. When you're drunk, I mean, you just can't take care of a baby. Never realizing the ramifications of th that whole thing, because I, I tell people, you know, I drank, I smoked, I um, had sex vicariously, I went to bar fights, and I was in jail, and that was before I was even born. And never realizing. <laughs> but what, what happens to, to people, you know, that, that go through all that is that as a result... I have had some frontal lobe damage, which has really affected the way that I perceive the world. I always knew that I was just a little goofy, a little off, you know, but I thought that was because of the alcoholism. And, but I found out just recently, you know, I'm in my 50s, that that really had an effect. I just thought I was strange, you know. And uh, so now I can deal with it. But I didn't start drinking until I was 19. And the only thing that saved me is that I, my first addiction was to a horse. And I was adopted by some wonderful people that had no idea what they're getting a hold of. 
and uh, they just allowed me to be me and um, started drinking at 19 and you know drinking was the deal because it made everything it made that roar inside my stomach be okay it made me feel like you guys looked and so I could have a few drinks and it was just like wow this feels great somebody told me recently two days ago they said you know Camille it's lucky you never got into cocaine because you would have loved it because they said what cocaine would have done for your brain is help you focus you know I said oh okay well (laughs) um, if it only didn't have that long-term side effect you know but it always does it just oh well but so I started drinking and I just fell in love with it I I uh, drank and I I loved men and and was you know when you're with guys and and uh, you're drunk things happen and and I got pissed off and then I thought oh this is pretty good so that was sort of the story is is drinking a lot and I loved to travel and and I started off I was born in Idaho raised in Montana uh, went to Washington, Oregon, and ended up in Vail, and I, Vail, Colorado. That's where I had my uh, um, downfall. Now, a lot of people have a downfall in Skid Row. Well, my Skid Row was Vail, Colorado, running with the people rich and famous. And thank God I was drinking. I couldn't have kept up with them. I could, wouldn't know have what to said, you know. But when you're drunk, you say anything, and they're drunk, and they don't care. Um, I only drank for four years. I mean, that's pitiful. Had major, major resentments against these old boys that, that were able to drink and fight and cuss and swear and do all those fun things. I thought, that's really, it's really not fair. But you know, for women, we go down a lot faster. And, and so that was the thing. And, and thank God I run into a bunch of big book thumpers. And uh, it was four men and me. We would, they'd meet. I got sentenced to go to AA. And... Uh, I didn't know what was wrong with me. I thought what was wrong with me is that I was driving somebody else's car. Uh, the police didn't understand. Um, you know, I, I had a lot of problems. Drinking, is drinking a problem? No. Drinking wasn't a problem. It was my solution. And one of the things that I was glad that I was able to drink long enough to get to you, where I could get the real solution, because I didn't even know what the right questions were. I just knew that inside me, I did not fit. So, so what was I going to do? I, you know, I think when they uh, send us down here, whoever does, they should give us a manual for life. And I never had a manual. I used to wing it all the time. And so then when I got to AA, they said, you know, you've got to find out what the problem is. And they would talk a lot about page 52. And I couldn't manage. You know, what can I manage? And I was fortunate that I got into the Denver Young Peoples, and they were people that they had fun. We used to go to a lot of conventions. These were our deals. Uh, when we went, we, none of us had any money, so we would all pile into a room, like 20 of us, and, you know, share stuff. And, and so that's sort of the way I sobered up, and, and it was, you know, thank God we had coffee cups to wash. Because if you don't know what to do and you don't know what to say, you can wash a coffee cup and feel good. And, and I think styrofoam really is sort of a downfall of our fellowship. <laughs> But I, I got in, and, and they didn't ask me if I, I wanted to uh, read the book. They read it to me because I couldn't read. Uh, I sort of missed that. And um, so I worked the steps. They pushed sponsorship. Every kind, they'll say, Camille, do you have a sponsor? Well, he won't let me. See. He, he doesn't want to sponsor me, I would say. They said, no, no, no. 
men sponsor men and women sponsor women. I said, don't you understand? I don't like women. I said, they're my competition. I don't trust them, blah, blah. They said, we don't care. Uh, old timers, they, they uh, never had any sympathy. I was lucky because I was only 23. They didn't pat me on the popo and say, there, there, little girl, just don't drink and it's going to be okay. They said, you know, if you want to stay sober for the rest of your life, you can do that here. And, and see, we get mixed up. The only requirement for membership in the fellowship is a desire to stop drinking. But that is not a requirement to stay sober for the rest of your life. You know, you got to do all the deal. Work the steps, go to meetings, get a sponsor, and do that over and over. And what I found with me, and I, I didn't know that until six years sober, what I suffer from is alcoholism, not alcoholism. And when I heard Clancy talk about that, I thought, I understand that. Because I think there, there's, well, there's a lot of different kind of drunks, but if you look at Bill and Bob, okay, and the two different kinds, now, now Bill was, he was nuts, okay, and he was just running around trying to, people said he was trying to get a spiritual experience, he was just trying to keep himself together. And, and then Dr. Bob was just sort of laid back, you know, the physician, he just sort of talked to, talked to people, and, and, um, I was more like Bill, because if I didn't have this program to work on a constant basis, see, I have a mind that works overtime in nonsense. And if you don't give my mind something to do, I will think about something that is destructive. And that's why, you know, I've been in AA for a number of years, and that's why I say, I see a lot of people, they come and go. I see, when we had the treatment centers in here, we had a lot of people that if you had $10,000, is my opinion, and or an insurance policy, you too could become a certified alcoholic. Thank God a lot of those people are finally leaving. Because what has happened is that I have to work steps. I don't, have, I don't even have a choice. I have to go to a certain number of meetings. I still have a sponsor. In fact, I'm so sick, I have two sponsors. <laughs> I'm a sponsor and sponsor emeritus. But, and thank God for email. You know, I can be sitting there with that mind, most intelligent thought, and write it down and send it to my sponsor. And, and so she wrote me back the other day, and, and she said, you know, um, thank God you were able to find good people that could help you because you're really a bad drunk, and there's a lot of bad drunks out there. So I, naturally, I didn't understand it, so I wrote her back and said, what do you mean by that? You know, you ever ask your sponsor, what do you mean by that? <laughs> she told me. She told me. She said, that's why you're still in AA. And... Uh, I've had a wonderful adventure in AA. If you would have asked me what I wanted when I came through the door, honestly, I never would have told you anything what my life is like today because I've had the opportunity to be in service at the local, the national, the state, and the international level. And that's where I applied the traditions. And I've also been able to not only learn how to read, but to go to college. I went to college, and I went to college, and this May I'm going to get my doctorate in uh, um, health education and for somebody who came here and couldn't read that was that was not a goal that wasn't even a dream that was what my sponsor told me I better do to become self-supporting uh, my mind still needs Alcoholics Anonymous and uh, it, this is a way that I have of sharing my experience strength and hope and the other thing that really was fortunate is is that after I got on my knees I'd found every sick man in Alcoholics Anonymous to date and I knew that wasn't working. <laughs> and then I went outside the fellowship and found more sickies. 
And finally, I got on my knees and I said, God, if you want me to be a nun for the rest of my life, no sex, no men, I'm willing. You know, we give up things by surrender. Give up alcohol, you know, then I finally gave up having sex. But that didn't mean that I was going to be a nun or a saint, you know. But what it allowed me to do is become self-supporting and learn that I don't need a man to make me okay. And then I, I met a man on an airplane and, and we started having a relationship. And that has been a real adventure for somebody that didn't get married till she was 39 years old. And I mean, I am an independent woman. It's been a real stretch for both of us. You know, I say that I didn't get Bob been to Al-Anon, but by George, I keep him there and give him an opportunity to work steps. <laughs> so anyway, um, I'm going to close there and, and come back, and I'll introduce you to, to this is my husband, the better half or the worse half, but by George, he's stuck with me. So Bob... <laughs> Hello, everyone. My name is Bob Frey, and I'm a grateful recovering med member of the Worldwide Fellowship of the Alnon Family Groups. Aww. Being here, I have an identity crisis. I feel like I was sitting here, and I think, uh, well, I should get up here and introduce myself uh, by saying that my name is Bob Frey, and through uh, the power of this program and the steps and the traditions and spot good sponsorship, and, and uh, I haven't had, I haven't found it necessary to manage, manipulate, or control since Easter Sunday of 1983. That would, <laughs> that would tell you my problem. And then I could, since we're on a time constraints, you know, and we try to give you a capsule of what's going on here, we decided that we would talk about relationships after we told you a little bit how we got here. And how I got here simply is that I married three alcoholic women. And that tells you my story. Uh, my home group uh, is a men's number one Al-Anon group, and in, in we meet every Tuesday night in, in uh, Louisville. And if you're ever in Louisville on a Tuesday night, please give us a call. We, we go 50 or 60 men on an evening and uh, break up into two discussion groups and have a step meeting or a tradition meeting going at the same time. One of the things, we get a lot of alcoholic men come in there, and you know, one of the things that they ask about, or I ask them, I said, why do you come here? Why do you come here? Uh, they said, well, AA has got me sober, but I'm having problems with relationships. And sobriety, each of the parties may be getting in a relationship, each of the parties may be getting uh, better, but the relationship deteriorates. And that's what we're trying to focus in on today. As I said, I grew up, uh, I grew up in a, uh, the youngest son in a family of four. I grew up not far from here, directly north in Michigan, about uh, 100 or so miles. In fact, I was thinking as a child, my mother was from Indiana, a little town, Swayze, Indiana, one of those Football, uh, basketball players from uh, from Indiana in the, the in the recent playoffs was from this little town of Swayze, and I remember as a kid going through, driving down, and after leaving Michigan, the, the only big town we came through was Fort Wayne, as I remember. Uh, but anyway, I grew up 
and say the child is father and the man. I grew up in a situation where my parents, uh, my parents, my, my father was uh, a functional literate. He didn't read or write. And my mother had one year of college. And how they ever got together, uh, even to this day, I don't know. It's one of those secrets. You know, we talk about the secrets that keep us sick. And in a relationship, any relationship, if you're withholding things, you're not talking about things. You know, we talk about the pink elephant that sits in the, in the living room of our homes. And we walk around it, we, we are influenced it, but we refuse to recognize it, that it's there. That problem comes from we fail to communicate and we keep secrets. And whenever we have secrets, we, we are not communicating, we're withholding. Uh, the, uh, as I say, I grew up in uh, Michigan and uh, then I went off to college and that's where I met my first alcoholic wife. She, she wasn't uh, alcoholic at that time, but, but uh, I thought that she needed uh, to be... When I first met her in college, she was, uh, she was having fun, going to parties and was just about ready to flunk out of college. And so I took her, took her and taught her how to how to get through college. Well, here I am, managing, manipulating, and controlling. And it, I do this under the guise of helping. And so often we in Al-Anon, we get into these relationships and we know what's best for you. And uh, if you just do what we ask you to do, you'll be okay. You know, we do that under the guise of helping. And I understand today that's conditional love. And it's like, I'll help you and I'll do these things for you, but you've got to do this. And I have come to believe that a lot of this comes from fear. It's fear generated within myself. I'm afraid that I won't be okay. And a lot of things that we do in our lives are motivated out of fear of not being okay. We're either going to lose all our money, lose all our health, lose all our happiness. And so we're afraid of this. So what we do in, in retaliation, not retaliation, but in reaction to that is that we take control and we're going to fix these things. And in our society, our society tells, especially to males, that you have to, to be a good father, provider, husband, whatever, you have to fix these things. Well, that's the message that I got, the message that I had to fix the things in my relationships. And... Uh, it's like, uh, uh, you know, as, as a, as a uh, boy growing up, I, I felt that was my responsibility. It was like the, the Boy Scout who has to do a good deed every day, and he, he comes up to the little old lady, and she's standing on the a, on a street, and he says, I'll take you across the street. And so he takes her arm, and he drags her across the street. She says, well, I didn't want to go across the street. And he says, well, you've got to go across the street because I've got to do my good deed today. And that's, that's essentially what we do in these relationships, is that we think we're helping. And it's almost one of uh, my second, uh, I should say in my first marriage, I had two, uh, two girls, two daughters, and they have, uh, they have benefited me with five grandchildren today. When Camille and I got married, she became an instant grandmother, and uh, without the trauma of, child, of uh, birth. So uh, that, in, in my second relationship uh, that I had, that uh, lady uh, 
one of the things that I remember so much, and it gets into these relationships, I would wake up in the morning and I would ask her, how do you feel? And if she said she felt good, I felt good. Because I felt I was responsible for that. If she said she felt lousy, then I felt lousy. Because it was this it was as if her blood ran through my veins. And we get into those kinds of relationships, and we look to another person to make us feel good. And I've learned one of the greatest things that I've learned in Al-Anon is that I don't have to be responsible for anyone but Bob. I don't have, as Camille said, she doesn't need a man in her life, and I've come to understand I don't need a woman in my life or anybody in my life to take care of. What Al-Anon has taught me is that I'm not responsible for anybody but Bob. And I have a hard time taking care of Bob. And you don't know what a relief it is not having to take care of all of these people in my life because I felt deeply responsible for them. And therefore, I've also come to understand that in a relationship, uh, whether a person succeeds or fails, it is not my responsibility. No, it's a, it's a kind of a spiritual thing, I think, that every time that we interfere with another person's life, if we get into their business, not our business, and we say we do this under the guise of helping, we want to protect them from being hurt. But any time we interfere with another person's life and their ability to succeed or fail, we are interfering with a God-given right. And... The most difficult thing for me is to, is to sit back and, and watch someone I love very much. I've watched that person and they may be in pain, and that hurts me. What I've learned in my relationship with, with Camille in the last five years, we've been married now, as she said, I met her on an airplane of going to the international, uh, we were going to the international Montreal in 1985, and that's a story in itself. And that's a God thing. And uh, we, we met each other on this airplane, and we started a long-distance relationship. I was in Louisville, and she was in Denver. And we became friends before we became lovers. And even today, Camille's my best friend, and I enjoy being with her. It's an adventure. As she's just said, sometime in this last five years, it's been more than an adventure. She's been working on her Ph.D., and I've had to, to do a lot of things just to keep up, uh, uh, just to, to keep us physically up, uh, taking care of the house and doing all our relationships because she threw herself into this, into this quest for her Ph.D., and she hit some, some barriers as she went along, and it wasn't all easy. She had to overcome a lot of... A lot of uh, of things in order to get to where she is today. And the hardest thing for me was to see her in many times in pain and not knowing what to do. And I would have to realize that it was not my job. And, and I had to keep telling myself this fear thing that comes up that I'm not going to be all right. I had to reach down, reach up to my higher power and to know that everything was going to be all right for both of us, regardless of what I've done or, or I'm trying to do. On a daily basis, I have to go to those first three steps. And I have to, in the first step, I realize that I'm powerless over persons, places, and things. I'm powerless over what my spouse is doing. 
and my life is unmanageable, and I have to keep coming back to that second part of the first step which says my life is unmanageable. I can sit here today and I know my life is unmanageable. On a daily basis, I have to remind myself. And that, you know, they often tell the story about the man who's hanging on a uh, vine over the cliff, and he's, and he's dangling there, and, and uh, he's yelling for help, and a voice comes and says, let go, my son. And he says, who's up there? And he says, the voice comes back, God. And the, vo and the man says, is there anybody else up there? And I, I understand, I've heard that ever since I've been in the program, and I never quite understood it until I understand that you've got to let go, that you've got to quit running the show. And that's what the first step's all about, accepting the fact that you're powerless and accepting the fact that you'll always be powerless. And that's what the hope comes in the second step, that there's a power greater than myself out there who can restore me to sanity. And that's my hope that my higher power is going to take care of me. But I can't stop there. And there's, I often say between that first and second step, there's an unwritten step which says, I, I'm not him. And that's what the biggest thing in, in letting go and turning things over to the higher power, and that higher power is not me. I've come to understand that God is the senior partner and I'm just the junior partner. And I do that by, on a daily basis, working that third step and turning my life and will over to the, my higher power. Some people call that the all non waltz, one, two, three. One, two, three, on a daily basis, I have to do that. And then I'm okay then I know that I don't have to manage, manipulate, and control. Then I know that I can just show up on a daily basis, pray that God get, tells me or shows me what I need, need to do that day, and God will give me the courage and the power to do what he would have me do. I don't have to make any decisions and know what's going on. I don't have to know what Camille's doing or my daughters are doing or my grandchildren, when I hear what they're doing, that's fine. But I don't have to do anything to change that unless I'm asked. And that's the big thing. I have to be open and receptive. And when we talk about relationships, one of the biggest difficulties is, is listening to the other person so that they can tell you what they need. You don't have to, you don't have to come up with an idea of what they're going to do. I remember one of my daughters, uh, was, I think it was a stepdaughter, years ago came up, she'd gone bowling and she came home and she, I asked her, did you have a good evening? And she said, uh, well, yes, but, uh, but I just couldn't get the right bowling ball. It just, I, it just didn't weigh right or it wasn't, just wasn't right. And so I said to her, I'm not gonna buy you another bowling ball. And she says, well, I didn't ask you to. I said, yes, you did. And the conversation deteriorated from there. But that's, that's what we do when we're not minding our own business. We think that every statement given to us is a request for help. And it's not. It's just someone telling me what's going on in their lives, and they're not asking for help. They just are trying to work through and trying to recite what's going on in their life. And so if I have the patience and understanding and love just to listen, I don't have to fix anything. And that's what, as I said earlier, when someone told me what was going on, I felt that was a cry for help. I've got to end this, I guess. Anyway.
I don't. Now, now you see something. I didn't even say a word. I didn't even say a word. And he said, I got to end this thing. Um, due to this time, we're trying to keep this on the time frame. It, there's God's time, Camille's time, and AA's time, and <laughs> so we're trying to run on God's time. But he said something that was very interesting about communication. Uh, because there, there's been a time, and and I'd say something, and he'd think he'd have to fix it. Now, see, thank God I've been in the program for a long time. Because if I would have met Bob when I was first new in sobriety, I would have eat him up. I would have killed a man. Because I, I really, I mean, I needed somebody to fix me. I was out there looking for him. And and uh, you know, my my sponsor says two sickies don't make a welly. You know. <laughs> You know, where boy meets girl on AA campus and, and you're sitting there at the meeting and you look across the way and you see him. You think, oh, good Lord, there he is. And I mean, the rest of the meeting's down the tube for you. Uh, I do want to say one thing because it, it was mentioned last night. I really did drink, okay? I, dr- I was drinking a fifth of whiskey at the end of my drinking. It was in a glass, c- cocktails, yes, but I was a hard drinker. And the thing that I really came to recognize is that without a spiritual experience, without a program manual, I would drink. I have no doubt in my mind today, you know, that if I don't have this program, my solution has been and will be if I don't use the big book and the 12 steps and everything here, I will drink again. And that's why it doesn't surprise me. And that's one of the things in the relationship that... A lot of times people will, they'll say to Bob, they'll say, well, she's been sober almost 30 years. What's the matter with her? You know, they don't understand. Why do you put up with that? Well, you get under a lot of stress and some of our old ideas come back. Uh, Getting this doctorate has reminded me of getting uh, sober again. Because every emotion that I had when I went through uh, getting uh, sober, it all came back. And I thought, I can't believe it. My thinking. You know, it's a thinking problem a lot of times and stuff. And that's where um, I thought I would share with that. What, what I also thought, uh, at least I want to do, is go through the tradition and sort of pinpoints, <laughs> pinpoint things. We do a workshop, a whole weekend workshop, and we, and we can't cover everything here, you know. But just to sort of give you a synopsis of how I apply the traditions and how he applies the traditions in his life. And I don't have to answer for him. And that's, that's what the concept is for me on the second tradition. Because I've had people come up to me and they'll say, can you and Bob do this or that? And you know, when I was first married, I said, oh, sure, we can do it. Never ask him, never even thought to ask him. And then he, he said, you know, it'd be really nice if, if you'd consult me on some things. I said... My mind was thinking, why? Why would I do that? But I didn't say that. I said, oh, okay, sounds good, you know. <laughs> but anyway, go ahead. Well, one of the, in the relationship, one of the questions, uh, we, I, one of the questions, and, and we, we thought we would try to get some questions from the audience. Uh, there's some paper and pencil circulating out there somewhere. That's and, not for your inventory. That's Yeah. <laughs> But some of the questions, one of the, the questions that often asked when we do these, these uh, relationship things is, is someone will ask, what is the basic requirement f- 
for a good marriage or a good relationship. And that actually comes right out of Tradition 3. Now, the, the traditions are traditionally looked upon as how a group operates. But we try to apply the traditions to a, a, a family relationship. And so when we asked what is the basic requirement for a good marriage or relationship, it's, it's two things, actually. You have to have a mutual desire to be in that relationship. Now, a lot of people are, are maybe in a relationship but do they have the basic desire to stay in that relationship? And if you have that basic desire to, to uh, stay in that relationship, you must have the basic desire to make it work. And that's where working the steps and these other, these other uh, uh, traditions help us to have that desire to make it work. And you have to use the acceptance. You have to be accepting of the other party. If I didn't, if I wasn't accepting of, of some of the things that have happened to her, uh, or accepting of the things that happened to me, you have to have understanding, and you have to have tolerance and love. And that's the only way that that if you're going to have that desire to make that relationship work, you have to incorporate the steps and the other traditions in that relationship. What what I found with um, uh, this uh, tradition is is that this desire to be there. I lived in Oberlin, Ohio, this fall, and and really went through a tremendous experience there, a tremendous uh, challenge, and and I really had to look at do I really want to be married, and because I think we all fall into patterns and we all fall into habits, and I had fell into a real habit of letting him do a lot of things that I, I could have done. You know, he, at the end, because I got so involved in what I was doing, he was cleaning the house, he was buying the groceries, he was, he was doing everything. And uh, it came to the point, he, he started believing I couldn't do anything. And so when I went to Oberlin, got a little apartment, and I, and I went and decorated and everything, and he came up and he said, well, I didn't know you could do all these things. Well, I hadn't done them for about three or four years. And, and that's where I think the relationship sometimes gets sick because the more that I stopped doing and the more he saw that I was in stress, the more his tendency is to take care of it and the more he started taking care of it. And then the other problem happened is that when he didn't take care of it, it was his fault. If I, you know, I started believing. I started buying into that whole sickness. And see, relationships, because I'm still basically an alcoholic, I mean, I think like an alcoholic, even though I've been sober for a while, but you get under a lot of stress, things go back. You know, I still have the thinking, magical thinking, well, if I do it again, it might turn out different, you know, and, and some of this other stuff. And, and I think we're a victim of hope or something, but that's where um, I, I found that, you know, desire to be there and, and autonomous. What does that mean for the fourth tradition? Go ahead. Well, being a... Being autonomous, you know, sometimes uh, we we get so uh, uh, anonymous around here. Uh, we don't uh, we don't we hide in the back in the back row. And to some people, that's what it means to be autonomous. But uh, autonomous means basically uh, what uh, you're trying to trying to do the things that you need to do in the, it's in the relationship. You can be autonomous in the relationship. It's not 
a question of, of uh, I do this and you do that. The being autonomous, think about it. When was the last time that you did something for the person in your relationship and they didn't know anything about it? You know, it's, we talk about that as doing something for somebody and they don't know do anything about it. How often have you done that in a relationship? Or do you say, well, I've done this, now you've got to do that. So being autonomous is just doing it. You could call it autonomous or you could call it, call it love. Not conditional love, but unconditional love. And, and you just do it and you don't think about it. Uh, one of the things, part of the autonomous, th uh, another thing is, is, is uh, whether that thing that you've done is whether it, it's really needed or whether it's in your mind that it's needed. And, and that's what the autonomous part is. I have to share a little uh, experience on that, is that I needed a new computer. And, and I told Bob, I said, I need a new computer. And in his mind, he thought, well, we'll fix the old computer. And, and so he went and fixed it, and it, I, I really needed a new computer. But in his best thinking, he fixed it. And I told him, I said, you realize what, what has happened here is it, it's like a little kid that says to his mother, you know, Mom, I'm hungry. And Mom said, well, that's okay. We're going to go shopping for shoes. So the kid doesn't know any different. I mean, when he said that, we'll fix it. I, well, I thought, well, maybe, you know, but I know I need a new computer. And so then the, the kid is there at the store with Mom, and he has a brand-new pair of shoes. And he said, Mom, I'm hungry. And she said, well, you want another pair of shoes? And that was sort of where I was feeling. You know, he kept saying, well, we're going to fix it. And, and not realizing, you know, everything that was going on, we weren't communicating. And you talk about frustrating. And, and I overreacted on that. I, I thought, I'm going to fix this. I'll just take the computer and chunk it. And I did. I went over and took the computer or hardware and just chunked it. And I told him, I said, I got rid of it. He said, you rid of what? I said, that thing that you kept trying to fix. I said, I need a new one. And now we do need to do it. You know? Now, you've got to remember, I'm a real wild alcoholic, you know, and my, that was my best thinking. I didn't call my sponsor. She would have told me, you know, not to do that. But, but, but the thing with me is, is that I find sometimes I get frustrated, and, and I have sometimes an inability, and that's where you really got to work on these relationships. They don't happen. It's, it's uh, not 50-50. It's 150 and 150. And uh, I've never had to work so hard in my life to stay in something. Uh, because before, you know, well, if you didn't like them, you'd just leave. But when I made a commitment, I really made a commitment. I made some commitments. I made a commitment that I would try this program and do the best that I could for one year. And if it didn't drink or if it didn't work, I could go drink. When I got married, I made a commitment to the marriage that I would stick there for better or for worse. That mean, doesn't mean that if I'm having a bad hair day or he doesn't agree or whatever, I can just leave. I did that with all those relationships, all those living guys. I just left. Screw them. But when I made this commitment, you know, I couldn't get my coffee pot and go start a new meeting. You know, that's sort of what it's like. You know, you get pissed off at a group, what do you do? Get your coffee pot book and go start a new meeting. Well, you can't do that with a relationship. And that, I realize that. And, and it's really, it's, it's really difficult. That's why people that are married long term, it's just amazing, you know? 
Just we have a fine example sitting there in the front row of two people that have been able to deal with, with each other. You know, you, you really, it's a, it is. Well, it's, a, it's all a, <clears throat> I've come to the conclusion it's all a part of, of, of getting well, you know, in a relationship. What happens when, when one party is getting well and the other party isn't? Uh, and that often happens uh, in, in a relationship now, whether they're both in alcoholics or both in Al-Anon, uh, the other party has to work their own program, not the other party's program, because the problem on my war stand at home, I have a, on my mirror, it says, you're looking at the problem. So every morning I look at that and I, I'm looking at the problem. I'm the, pro I'm the problem. And in a relationship, my, my deal is to take work my program, not my partner's program, or to work some pro kind of a program. It's pretty difficult in a relationship if one of the parties is trying to work the program and the other one isn't. My answer to that is uh, don't worry about the other party. My sponsor told me one time is how he got into the program was that his wife found the program and started going to these meetings every night or... And, and he was laying home, worrying about her. He said when she was drinking, passed out on the sofa, <clears throat> it was easy. But when she sobered up and started going to meetings, <clears throat> he didn't know what to do with himself. So in desperation, he turned to Al-Anon. And I think that's the key to it. Many types in a relationship, if, if one of the parties starts working a program, instead of trying to run that person's program or trying to take care of them, it's not your business. Your business is to take care of yourself. You're the problem, and, and you need to find a program, and you need to work that program to the best of your ability, not your partner's program. Camille's got a, her program, and lots of times when she's, I, I have to bite my tongue, and when she's wrestling with something, I want to ask her, you called your sponsor? Well, you haven't been to a meeting in the last week, you know, or something like that. I don't say that. I, he's I, lucky he's not <laughs> stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so, but I have had times where I've called her sponsor. <laughs> yeah, he changed me in. <laughs> yeah, then she says, oh, you're being a martyr again. <laughs> It's, uh, you know, working somebody else's program is, is uh, really, really something else. And, and that's one of the things that, that I really found is it because he can fix me. He cannot fix me. I have my own program. He has his own program. You know what? Thank God. I mean, what a wonderful thing because I've been in these relationships where I found some sicky and I thought if he only had a good woman and I had to work twice as hard and he's still sick. And, and that's one of the requirements. When I got married, I thought, I am not going to go out there and find another sickie to put together. He's either going to have his own program, his own sponsor, and I'm so glad because he uses his sponsor. A lot of times I'll say, what did Joe say about this situation? I'm always curious what his sponsor says. He must, but, um, and he shares with me. And so that's where it's so lucky because I don't have to fix him and he doesn't have to fix me. And... Uh, I don't have to fix the people that I sponsor either. You know, I don't have to fix you. Uh, and, and, you know, and I can't even fix me. 
but by working the steps and traditions and all the stuff that we do, somehow God gets in there and fixes us. And that's the thing that's, that's really nice about this deal.